when we last look at the book of Philippians, we had just moved into chapter 4, and we looked at verse 1, uh, which were Paul, where Paul finally uh, finishes uh, his discussion, if you will, about Judaizing teachers. Uh, as we went through the book of Philippians, we see Paul, of course, talking about his great love for the church there, and that causes him to long to be with the church at Philippi. And at the same time, the thing that he wants to stress to them, because he loves them so much, is that the church uh, continue to be unified, that there will always be unity in the church. And he gives them a powerful lesson through Jesus Christ, how to maintain unity. And um, therefore, he tells them that there needs to be no strife, no murmuring in the church. And um, then after giving them some examples of some Christians who... Uh, unselfishly do what they can for the church, he talks about some negatives. In fact, this is really the only negative in the entire book, Um, and it's the Judaizing teachers. And after having the discussion of these Judaizing teachers, he he basically ends his discussion in verse chapter uh, 4 and verse 1 where he says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. He's emphasizing, as we said last week, that he loves this congregation very much. He wishes he could be there to help them in this battle, but he's given them enough ammunition now that he can stand fast. The church can stand fast against the onslaught of these uh, Judaizing teachers that will come in and try to divide the church. As we mentioned, the word stand fast there is a military term, meaning to repel Stand firm in your position and don't let anybody get past you. And so that's where we finished up last week. Well, it's interesting now that he has dealt with the church as a whole and perhaps the greatest thing that could cause division in the church, a major onslaught. Now he changes uh, to something that some may consider minor, but yet it's something that still can cause uh, disunity in the church. And so beginning at verse 2, he introduces us to two women. And he says, I beseech you, 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 I don't know how to pronounce this, my mouth won't work right. Euodius and uh, Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. So he goes from talking about a terrible, powerful, powerful threat that could come through the church And he now addresses his attention to two women in the church with some names we don't say very often because you can tell I can't pronounce them very well. But he says, says, I beseech these two women that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, help me out here. This, of course, is conjecture. We have no way of knowing. But what do you think is going on here? All right. There's some kind of disagreement between these two women. Now, we don't know who these two women are. This is all the Bible says about them. The Bible doesn't say what their disagreement was. Uh, You can look, grab a lot of different uh, commentaries, and you can look at what some people guess, uh, but that's all it would be is guessing. It's really not that important what their disagreement is. The problem is they had a disagreement. And so Paul, once again, is sticking with the same theme that he has dealt with throughout this book, really, And that is that there needs to be unity in the church. But now 
he's gone from this massive thing that we might worry about, these Judaizing teachers coming in, to dealing with this idea of here's just two women. Why do you think he puts this attention on these two women? Now think about this attention for a moment. When this letter got to the church at Philippi, what did they do with this letter? They read it to the congregation. Now think about this for a moment. <laughs> if every single one of us likes to have our name mentioned, I don't know if you will admit this or not, but when somebody mentions somebody's name, uh, usually you like that. If, if you're at a, uh, uh, well, for example, I just use myself. If I'm visiting an, at another congregation and I'm listening to the preacher preach and um, the preacher, before he, as he's getting up to preach, he says, well, it's good to see uh, Jim Farr here today. You know, he's a preacher over in so-and-so. Or um, I was uh, up where, somewhere up in the mountains not too long ago, and there was a preacher there that's a, a friend of mine, and his name is Jim, just like me. And he, sit, he got up to preach, and he says, he saw me stand, sitting out there in the audience. He didn't know I was there, and he saw me there. And he, it kind of took him back a little bit, and he says, you know, my name is Jim, but my favorite Jim is here. And that made me feel good because we like having our name mentioned. But can you imagine? There they are reading this letter and everybody's hearing what Paul has to say. And they say, amen, amen. Oh, yeah, that's just some good stuff, Paul. Then he gets to this part and he says, I beseech you two women. <laughs> and names them by name. How embarrassing would that have been? And here we got even now, 2,000 years later, we're still seeing these two women's name mentioned. Now... Once again, why did Paul do this? Not only did he say there was a problem, he mentioned these people by name. Yes, oh, I thought you had your hand up, Roger. You just look at your hand. Go ahead, Eric. He's doing like you said. He's pulling the Barney Fife. He wants to nip it in the bud because that's the way that, that strife starts in the church. It starts with just the smallest little thing sometimes. Yes. Very good. And I think... Two, you know, some people might say, well, Paul's going a little to the extreme here, bringing these people out. But yet, at the same time, he is showing them, as he's shown them throughout this book, how important unity is. And we want to stop anything that might destroy that unity. And as James tells us, when he talks about the tongue, sometimes it, always, sometimes it only takes a little bitty spark to get a forest fire going. And once that fire is spreading, you can't put it out. And so he's, he's emphasizing that we might think, well, these two women have a disagreement. We don't know what this disagreement is. But Paul says, you know, we don't need to have disagreements in the church. In fact, he goes, he can be pointing back to what he said earlier. Let there be no strife, strivings or murmurings in the church. You want to say something, Susan? Are you over there? Absolutely. Those Judaizing teachers are coming, but we can't stand fast if we've got... Uh, Dissension within the ranks are supposed to be standing fast. Yes, Julie. Well, society has changed a lot. I like, you, like Jeremy said, if we start calling people by name here, uh, I'd be standing up there by myself. Um, and there was a time. There was a time. <laughs> that's true. It'd be all. It'd be left for the people who really wanted to be here. <laughs> but there, there was a time in churches. You know, uh, they had official men that would stand in the back and if you fell asleep they hit you on the head with a with a, a, a thing so <laughs> or they poke you with a stick that's jamie's 
familiar with. Um, but <laughs> it's a long story. <laughs> no, she's on about when we we go camping. If we if I saw a snake, she, kids want me to poke it with a stick. But anyway, that's a long story. <laughs> Need to bring that back, poking. Bring, uh, bring it back. Okay. You're <laughs> on the job. But whatever the problem is, he tells them um, that they need to be of the same mind. And it's interesting, that word in the, in the same, uh, in the Greek, the idea of same mind is where we get our Greek word harmony from. Um, what does it mean to be in harmony? Especially when it comes to music. What's that, friend? Working together to make something pleasant. Um, it doesn't have to be identical, but it all works together to make something pleasant. Other other day at uh, Chuck's funeral, uh, the family had a, a very good violinist playing at the beginning of the service and at the end of the service. And um, <clears throat> I was talking to the grandkids about um, how good she was, and I was trying to explain to them how difficult it is to play the violin because if you don't know what you're doing, the violin is one of the most horrendous sounding things you've ever heard. It sounds like two cats got thrown in a bag together and they're fighting. I mean, it's awful. It's like screeching unless you know what you're doing. If you know what you're doing, you make that instrument just sound so beautiful. Well, it's the same way with harmony. We can get a bunch of people in here and we can and sing, but if we're not in harmony, it just doesn't sound that good. Or for that matter, if we get a bunch of instruments in a band and the band is not playing in harmony, then it just sounds like a bunch of noise and it's not pleasing to anybody. And so I think it's interesting Paul uses this word here to illustrate the oneness he wants these women to have, this togetherness, because he wants the church to be something that is pleasant, something that is working together as opposed to something that is causing noise, if you will. Right now what they're doing is causing disruption, is causing noise, but he wants them to be in harmony. He wants it to all be pleasant because that's what church, the church is supposed to be. Um, the, how blessed is it when the brethren dwell together in unity, as the psalmist says. Now what's interesting about these women also, if you look down at verse 3, and we'll talk about verse 3 in just a moment as far as going through it, but it mentions two things about these women that you might not expect about these two women. Here's two women that evidently are causing some trouble in the church because of their disunity uh, to the point that Paul mentions them by name all the way from Rome in prison. He has better things to think about, but he mentions these two women by name. But notice what he also mentions about these two women. What are two things that we can learn about these two women? Looking at verse 3. All right, as Janice said, I don't know if you heard or not, they had worked with Paul. Uh, they were, they were fellow, la fellow laborers, literally fellow workers, and we don't know exactly what area that was. They may have been those who had uh, worked with him when he was in Philippi as far as evangelism. They may have been one who provided his needs when he lived in, in Philippi as far as giving um, him food and a place to stay at times. They may have been somebody who uh, were wealthy women who contributed greatly to, the, to his cause even now while he's in prison. But he, these women who are women who work in the church, and there's a lot of people in the church who uh, attend church, so they're here, but they really don't get involved. These women were involved. Now, what else does it say about these women? All right. 
They worked with people who were in the book of life, but what does it say specifically about them in the book of life? They're in the book of life also. The idea at the end of verse 3 is where it says whose names, that includes everybody he's talking about. He mentions Clement specifically, and he mentions a yoke fellow. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he also mentions these women in the same breath. Now, that makes you appreciate and understand the fact, first of all, that here were people who were active in the church, and they were true Christians because they're in the book of life. But yet, that shows you sometimes how because of personalities and because of who we are, uh, because we are human, that sometimes even good people, can get into a discussion that sometimes has no benefit other than to cause disharmony. Another thing I think is, needs to be pointed out here is that because it says whose names are in the book of life, literally in the Hebrew and the Greek text, it's whose names in the book of life, meaning it's, it's there. Um, it's the idea that, yes, they had their problems. They were even had to be called out by Paul. But as... Uh, Paul has pointed out earlier in this book, it's the blood of Jesus Christ that saves you, and though they needed to change what they were doing, and that's the reason why Paul wrote these words, yet they were still in the book of life. And so we learned some things about these women. We learned that they were causing some kind of trouble, um, caused disharmony, uh, that they were fellow workers with Paul, and that their names were, were in the book of life. So it's an interesting thing about these women. That's all that we... I know about, but I still can't get over the fact of, of, the, of somebody standing up before the congregation and reading their names. And I can almost uh, hear my dear brother Grady when, the, the, when he heard that saying, huh, they said that out loud? Um, because uh, I, I like it when he says that. But anyway, uh, verse 3, let's dig into it now. It says, after mentioning these women that they be in harmony with one another. Um, well, before we, before we get to verse 3, I left off the tail end of something here at verse uh, 2. I want to make sure we understand. He says he wants them to be in harmony or of the same mind in the Lord. Let's look at that just for a moment. What does he mean to be in harmony in the Lord? All right, worship in the Spirit is a part of it, absolutely. All right, using the word as the standard. What are you going to say, Michael? Okay, I like that. Everything you're saying is correct because it all fits under the same umbrella. The emphasis, I believe, he wants them to understand and appreciate here is the fact is that they are in the Lord. And if you're in the Lord, why are you disagreeing? Why is there disharmony when you have the same grace that's saving you? When you have the same blood through which you get forgiveness? When you have all these things that tie you together that makes you in the Lord, then why do you want to have disharmony? Paul, earlier in this book, at the beginning of, of chapter 2, um, talks about the fact that, they, that there's all these different things that we have in common as Christians. And he's emphasizing that again in the Lord. So, uh, once again, an emphasis on unity. But look, let's look at verse 3. He says, And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, Help those women which labor with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with, with other of my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. All right, evidently, <clears throat> it's kind of a little bit hard to understand in the King James, but evidently, uh, Paul is asking for someone in the church to kind of be a mediator or go-between these two women. 
help them solve the problem so they can put an end to this and there can be uh, unity once again. Now, we don't know who this fella is, or we assume it's a fella, but it might have been a woman, but uh, more than likely because of the Greek word being in the, in the male gender. Um, there's a man somewhere that he refers to as a yoke fella. Now, what in the world is a yoke fella? All right, true companion. The King James uses this word yoke fella to help us picture in our mind um, two oxen that are part of the same yoke that are doing the same work. They're striving to do the same thing. Uh, we don't think about oxen being yoked today because we don't, we just don't are around farms. They don't use yokes like they used to. But in the old days, they would have a wooden yoke that would one part would come under two oxen and then the other part would come up and it kind of tie them together. And um, so he's talking about somebody who, who is yoked with him. So more than likely is someone who has done the same thing as he has done and, and maybe suffered the same way that Paul has suffered. We don't know who this person was that he's addressing. A lot of people think that it was maybe uh, Epaphroditus because Epaphroditus maybe was the one who told him about these two women because remember Epaphroditus is the one who came to see Paul in prison and was working with him and was his servant and now Paul is sending him back and so he's stating in the letters so everybody will know that he has asked this person to do it. When Epaphroditus is get, going to get there, he's going to help these women solve this particular problem, whatever that problem may be. And, of course, Epaphroditus would have the counsel of Paul because he's right there with him now. And he says, listen, this is how you solve the problem. When you get back there, uh, we'll let you take care of it. It may be that that might be totally wrong completely because all we're doing is guessing. Mike, what do you want to say? Okay, that's a possibility. It's interesting. There's some commentators who believe that this is actually a person's name. Uh, there is a Greek word that means yoke fella, uh, Sasmergius or something like that, uh, that is a name that Greek people use today. The only problem with that is that there's no record in ancient Greek writings of that name ever being a proper name. So most people think that that became a proper name after such a passage as this appeared. Where somebody was called Yokefella and they think, well, that's a pretty good thing to call somebody. And so I'm going to name my kid Yokefella because that is a Greek name now, uh, uh, Sasmergius, which means Yokefella. Uh, but uh, maybe Paul was mentioning somebody by name or not. That's just a little... Anecdotal information, anecdotal information won't be on the test, so don't worry about it, okay? Uh, any other questions or comments uh, before uh, we leave verse 3? All right. Now, after making comments, first of all, about a major threat that we might think of, the Judaizing teachers, and dealing what we might think of as a minor threat, two women having a squabble in the church, now he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. He's gotten everything out of the way that he wants to get out of the way as far as dealing with the unity of the church. Now he, he, he wants them to think about the most important thing. And the most important thing to Paul as far as the church there in Philippi was that they needed to rejoice. Now the first thing that strikes me about this is the person who was saying this. Who's saying this? Where is he? And that's exactly right. Rejoicing, as Paul is talking about here, has nothing to do with outside circumstances. 
And he's going to drive that point home in just a minute. Christians are to, to rejoice not because of outside circumstances, but because of what has happened to them. In fact, he says in verse 4, he says, Rejoice where? In the Lord. Now, he's used this phrase over and over in this book, and it emphasizes the fact that our rejoicing is because we're in the Lord. The reason why they, those women should have harmony is because they're in the Lord. The greatest thing that we have in this life is that we are in the Lord. And that should always cause us to rejoice. In fact, here in the Greek, rejoice in the Lord always. The reason why it's translated that way is just because it's in the present tense, which is continuous action. Paul says there's never, ever a time we shouldn't be rejoicing. It's continuous. Rejoicing, rejoicing. We're always rejoicing. Now, somebody might say, Wait a minute, Paul, you, you don't understand how hard my life is. You don't understand what I have going on. Uh, I've got some objections. Well, just in case somebody says that, in verse 4 he says, And again I say rejoice. Let me double emphasize this. Okay, you want to say something, Beverly? And um, did, um, do we know anybody that went to heaven and came back and told us about it? In a dream, he, he saw visions about heaven. But there's somebody that actually was called up into heaven and saw things which were unspeakable. The guy writing, Paul. I can't remember, it's in 2 Corinthians, I can't remember the exact chapter off the top of my head now, but he, remember he was talking to uh, about his thorn in the flesh and whatnot, and he makes mention of the fact he was called up into the third heaven. And by third heaven, Jews believe you got the atmosphere Right here, that with the birds fly, that's the first heaven, and then the stars where uh, where the stars are, and the moon and whatnot, that's the second heaven, and then third heaven is where God dwells. And he says, I was called up into heaven, and he saw things which he cannot tell us about. But yet here was a man who went to heaven and back. And this is the same man that is saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice. And so that confirms what Michael was saying. And we need to rejoice the fact that we have a home in heaven when we think about who we are and think about how in the world am I getting to enjoy something like that. I don't deserve it. I know me, but yet God says that he's going to give me a home like that, Tony. Absolutely. Now, tie this into, remember, he, he always seems to be dealing with his central theme here. How would this tie in... Um, to what he's been talking about thus far. There you go. There you go. Um, if our mind's in the right place, where it needs to be, and that is, uh, as I sometimes, well, I think, I think I'm pretty good about saying it every Sunday morning. Isn't it grand to be a Christian? Well, if it's grand to be a Christian, why in the world are we going to be fighting with one another? And uh, that's some of the idea that he has here. We're running out of time, but let's move on to verse uh, 5. He says, the King James Version says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Moderation is probably one of the poorest translations of this particular word. Now, if you go grab a bunch of commentaries, they will tell you that this is the most difficult Greek word to translate in the New Testament because it's almost untranslatable in the, into the English. But I would dare say that somebody who does not have the King James uh, you have a better word there. What's a better word? 
gentleness. What, what, what somebody else? I heard there. you had gentleness. What you have, Eric? Reasonableness, forbearance. See, that's the thing about it. there's so many different ways to translate this word because they're not sure how to translate. But moderation makes you think, well, let's do things in moderation. And like you're talking to something about, um, you know, being middle ground or whatever. That's not what the text is talking about. The truest definition probably would be gentleness, being patient. It's gentleness with patience, if you will. And so after talking about these women and talking about how we always need to rejoice, he says, you know, let your gentleness and patience, gentleness and patience for reconciliation, if you will, be known unto all men, not just people in the church, but to all men. Because of the fact that we can rejoice, and again I say rejoice, and we have all these reasons for rejoicing, we need to be more gentle and patient with other people. Now, what in the world does that mean, be more gentle and patient with other people? Right, right. Obviously, these women weren't disagreeing over doctrinal issues. It was over personal preferences of some type or some personality conflict. The thing that Tony said is what Paul is tying into this with the previous verse. We rejoice because of the grace of God. We need to show grace to other people. We rejoice because we have the forgiveness of God. We need to be more forgiving to other people. We don't get what we deserve, and because of that, we rejoice. We shouldn't be so adamant that other people get what they deserve. That's the idea here when he's talking about gentleness and patience, especially for the point of reconciliation. Then he adds this particular point to it. He says, the Lord is at hand, and this is the reason why we need to be gentle and be patient with people. He says, the Lord is at hand. What does that mean, the Lord is at hand? All right. He is near. He's only a death away. <laughs> he sees and hears everything. Did somebody else want to say something else? Yes. All right. His work is being done. Uh, it's funny. People don't know exactly what Paul means here. Because he can mean a variety of different things, as we just found out. Some people look at that and they think that Paul is talking about the intimate return of the Lord could happen at every mo any moment. Okay. Um, anybody remember what they, the, the greeting they would oftentimes use in the first century when they saw another Christian and realized that they were a Christian? Remember the greeting they used? Maranathema, which means the Lord is coming or the Lord is at hand. And that may be what he's referring to is the fact that the Lord is going to return. Also, he may mean, as you all brought out, that he's talking about the fact that the Lord's right there with you. Uh, everything we do is in the presence of the Lord. Uh, these two women that are fighting, whether you're fighting in the presence of the Lord, uh, when we're rejoicing, we're rejoicing in the presence of the Lord. The Lord is at hand because he is right there with us. Or it could be, as Michael says, you know, we don't know what breath is going to be our last breath. And in that sense, the Lord is at hand. Whether or not He's coming back in the next day or two, we uh, have the possibility of going to meet Him before everybody else goes to meet Him. Uh, the point, of course, is that two things. We need to rejoice because the Lord's at hand, and we need to be gentle toward other people because the Lord is at hand. Yes, and the Lord is within us. Absolutely. 
He lives within us. Christ dwells within us. So he's definitely at hand that way. Julie? Absolutely. And it's interesting that uh, word for loving kindness um, is the word that we get uh, as charis, which is the word we get grace from. And uh, we need to extend grace to other people because grace has been extended toward us. You remember the parable Jesus told about the two debtors. One owed just a little bit of money and one owed more than he could ever pay in his lifetime and how they were both retreated. And the point of it is we need to treat people with the same way that God uh, treats us. And that's the point that Paul, of course, is making here. Um, After saying that, though, he gets into verse 6 and says something that's almost amazing. He says, be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. He says, be careful for nothing. Once again, we got an archaic English word there in the King James, but the word careful means what? He's saying be what? Yes, Julie. Anxious, which we means the word worry. He says, you don't need to be worrying about anything. Don't worry about anything. Now, of course, that's easier said than done, but let me put this to you. Is worrying a sin? It most certainly can be. And why is that, Jeremy? Uh, that's what I'm looking for is lack of faith. And Jeff agreed. He's going to say that if you weren't. He was back there. Yeah, he was, he was leaning. He was, he was about to get there. <laughs> Worrying shows the lack of faith in God and Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus spent a large portion of the Sermon on the Mount dealing with this particular idea about taking no thought for the morrow because the morrow will take care of itself. He says... Um, don't you worry about food. Don't you worry about raiment. Uh, you know, he even makes the point, you know, worrying's not going to make you any taller. You know, who can worry enough to make themselves taller? It just won't happen. Instead, he says, don't you be like the Gentiles or the pagans, but you put your trust and faith in God. In fact, he goes on in verse 33 of Matthew 6, 33, but seek ye first the kingdom of God. Now, he's telling us that we have an obligation and a goal, but the point he's making that text is, instead of worrying, you'd be thinking about God. You'd be thinking about what God can do. And so he says here, not only do not worry, but literally he says, looking at the Greek, you don't worry about anything. Well, that's a tough job to accomplish, but that's what he's saying there. He is saying that we as Christians shouldn't worry about anything because the most important things are taken care of. But then he goes on in the verse and he says, but. Now, he's making a contrast here. He's pointing out that instead of worrying, this is what you should be doing. He's saying this is what you should be doing in worrying. So I can gather from this that every time I do start the worry, this is what I need to do. When I'm worrying and my faith in God is not what it's supposed to be because I'm letting the worry take over my mind, here's the remedy, here's the prescription, here's what I'm supposed to do. He says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Worry about nothing, but in everything, he tells us three things here. Actually, four things. 
He says, and the word, the idea with everything there ties to all four of these. In everything, the first thing we're supposed to do is pray. Pray is, is it time? Oh, people out there hollering. Well, actually, oh, my clock has slowed down. All right, so we better stop. But we'll pick up there because this is a good section. I want to leave it hanging. We'll come back to it. All right, thank you.